Good evening. So last night I started to explore the set of afflictive mental states known as the five hindrances. These are five particularly unskillful mind states that get in the way of insight or clear seeing. And they have the potential to get us to think and speak and act in ways that are harmful to ourselves and harmful to other people. So learning how to recognize and free ourselves from these five hindrances is a crucial skill in insight practice. Because unless we understand how to help them release, there won't be room in the heart and the mind for the skillful qualities to develop. And we won't experience the ever-deepening freedom that this path is leading towards. So in last night's talk, I spoke mostly about just the first of these five hindrances, which is craving or desire for sense pleasure, conditioned by the root energy of greed, which covers any kind of wanting in the mind, from the most intense addiction through to just that slight movement towards something pleasant, wanting to hold on to it, prolong it, and so on. So tonight, in the service of balance, I want to talk about the second hindrance, which is aversion. Yes, ill will. And according to Gil Fransdell, ill will or viapada in Pali is the desire to strike out at something. And it's motivated by hostility. And it manifests as wanting to hurt, attack, push away, or turn away from something. So it includes subtle forms of aversion, such as mental resistance, all the way through to murderous rage, and also various forms of fear, from minor anxiety all the way through to total terror. So this hindrance covers a pretty broad scope of unpleasant emotions and afflictive mind states. So just to start to name a few, dislike. Aversion, irritation, frustration, anger, rage, anxiety, fear, panic, terror, sadness, despair, grief competitiveness, resentment, envy, jealousy, resistance, rejection, embarrassment, humiliation, shame. I could keep going. <laughs> There's probably a few I missed. Anybody like to contribute anything else? But you get the general picture. Uh, this is not a particularly pleasant set of mind states. And you might notice even right now, if there's a flicker or a pulse of aversion to the idea of having a whole talk about aversion. So just by way of reassurance, only half the talk is going to be about aversion. <laughs> the other half is going to be about the antidote to it, which is compassion. 
But before we go there, just to recap about how to work with the hindrance of aversion when it has come up. In terms of applying the wisdom wing of the practice, the first step is to recognize that aversion is present in the mind. Because aversion is experienced as unpleasant, it's usually fairly easy. Unlike sense desire, which sometimes is experienced as pleasant, aversion is generally experienced as painful, so there's a natural wish to be free of it which itself can turn into aversion, aversion to the aversion, aversion to the aversion to the aversion, and so on. So we need to be careful not to amplify and prolong it by cultivating aversion to the aversion, but we do want to see it and help it to release. So coming back to Gil Fransdell's BELLA acronym, once we've recognized that yes, aversion is present in the mind, the first step is to let it be. B stands for let it be. In other words, not to feed it, not to ignore it, not to repress it or deny it. Instead, we know that it's there. And perhaps we even greet it softly. Hello, aversion. Looks like you've come to visit again. So we remind the aversion that it is a visitor. If you remember that term I shared the other day, these... um Afflictive states are known as adventitious defilements. So that means they come, they're not inherent, they come, they are visitors. So we remind the aversion that it's a visitor. We don't immediately evict it, but we also don't want to make it too comfortable. We can just let it be over there in the corner. And there's a spaciousness in our relationship to it. And that makes the next part of Bella possible, which is E for examine. And again, this can be challenging because aversion is so unpleasant. So this attitude of kind curiosity and befriending the mind that I've been um, orienting us to is pretty important here. And in alignment with that, I heard a talk by the English monk Ajahn Suchito a few <coughs> years ago. And he used a phrase that really stood out for me. He was talking about how all of us have aspects of our hearts and minds that we would rather not know about. And he referred to these kinds of split-off areas of our psyches as orphans of consciousness. Orphans of consciousness. And there was something about that phrase that really resonated for me at the time. And I realized that without really knowing it, I'd been running an orphanage (laughs) and that I needed to start taking better care of all of those orphans that were in my charge. So with E for examine, we invite the orphaned aversion to come a little closer so we can get to know it better. We might ask it, how are you? And try to be genuinely interested in the answer. Because if we listen carefully, we can learn a lot from aversion. That listening is the kind of embodied intuitive awareness that we've been emphasizing throughout the retreat and that you've been practicing with each other in the dyad practices. But at first, when we ask aversion how it is, it's likely to start telling us all kinds of compelling stories to justify its existence. So we need to probably gently but firmly interrupt the story and ask it again, how are you really? 
and we bring our awareness into the body and pay attention to all the sensations in the body that are associated with this aversion. And when the aversion understands that it is going to be listened to fully, it can start to settle down and it might start to tell you how painful it is to be holding on to anger all the time, how lonely it feels underneath all of that aggressive energy, how much anxiety it has about something bad happening. And worse than any of that, how terrified it is that we might see through its bravado to the abject shame underneath. I'll come back to shame in a few minutes, but first, to finish this exploration of the BELLA acronym in relation to aversion, L stands for LESSON. And the more we can meet the aversion with this attitude of kind curiosity, of befriending, the more likely it is that it will start to naturally lessen in its intensity. And we can help that lessening by consciously releasing any body tension that we're aware of. So a few days ago when I was talking about training in body literacy, all of us can begin to recognize what are the particular physical sensations for each of us in relation to these afflictive energies. So with aversion, there's often a kind of uh, sort of stabbing feeling somewhere, a hollowness in the belly or a tightening of the jaw, or heat in the face and so on. And the earlier we can recognize those symptoms and soften them and relax them, the easier it is to stop that mind-body, um, what do you call it, feedback loop from turning into a full-blown ill-will attack. So we reduce any physical tension associated with aversion, and we try also to reduce the mental tension by withdrawing our awareness from the painful thought patterns. So coming back to this wheel model, Keeping coming back to the center of the wheel rather than spinning out on the edge in papancha and proliferation. And sometimes it can actually be what's called skillful means when we're dealing with aversion to consciously turn our awareness to what's pleasant. This doesn't mean chasing after sense pleasures because that's another hindrance. But it might be skillful if we're really lost in afflictive states to try and open up and see what else is going on right now. Can I at least recognize, if it's daylight, the sky is blue, the tuis are singing, there's a beautiful, delicious bowl of soup in front of me right now. Can I take in all the aspects of my experience right now that are nourishing, pleasant, beneficial? as a way of bringing the heart-mind back into balance. Sometimes, though, even this isn't enough, and we might need to bring in one or more of the antidotes. So this morning, no, this afternoon, I mentioned that the practice of metta, of goodwill, is a direct antidote to ill will. So bringing in metta can be helpful to soothe and soften and at times release the painful and afflictive emotion. And even if at times we feel overwhelmed by difficult emotions, just having that glimmer of an intention 
to move away from the affliction can be enough to move in the direction of metta. So I've shared with some of you the example of, uh, in my own practice, the first time I sat a three-month retreat at IMS, about halfway through it, I got caught in some massive multiple hindrance attack, and it was pretty intense. And I can't even remember why or what the story was now. It doesn't really matter. But I can remember the feeling that it was like my mind was wrapped in barbed wire and any kind of thinking was painful and it felt like every other afflictive state was getting hooked in there and I was just getting more and more tangled in painful situations. And I had a vague idea that I should be doing some meta practice, but I just couldn't even bear to go into the hall. So I decided I would go out for a walk and do metta while walking. And IMS is set in pretty amazing countryside, New England countryside, and it was autumn and it was picturesque, but I was stomping around those roads, (laughs) almost totally consumed by ill will. And I started trying to recite the traditional phrases, similar to what we did this afternoon. May all beings be safe. May they be healthy, may they be happy, may they know peace. But it felt like the words would just sort of turn into ash in my mouth and I was almost gagging on them. I couldn't, I tried, every sentence just kind of dissolved before it was able to be completed. And so what I ended up doing was just, all I could do was say, all beings all beings, and I kept trying to say, may all beings be happy, but all my mind could get out was all beings. And so I just walked saying, all beings, all beings, all beings. And surprisingly, that was enough. Just that remembering that there were all beings, and it wasn't just about me, just that little crack, that little glimmer started to open up a bit more space, I started to walk more slowly. And by the time I got back to the center, I was in a completely different mind state. So for me, that's an example of the miracle of metta. Even when we assume it's not going to work, it can do something. So looking back on it, I think that was possible because of that intention to try to cultivate metta. So even though I wasn't feeling it, it was that intention orienting over and over to the intention eventually allowed the aversion to lessen and then to let go. So that's the second L of Bella, is letting go. And a key aspect of this uh, letting go is letting go with the identification with the hindrance, the tendency to take it personally and be about me, define me, who I am. So in the example I just gave, in the beginning I was totally identified with the hindrance. But using that metaphrase of all beings helped to remind me that on some level it wasn't actually all about me. That there's a lot more going on in the world than just me and my problems. And I wasn't actually that little piece of excrement at the center of the universe, as one Zen teacher likes to put it. So once the hindrance has been let go of, the final stage of Bella is to appreciate how it feels to be free from it. And this is an important step not to overlook. 
And it can be difficult because, as I've been talking about the inherent negativity bias, we tend to notice our problems, not so much the absence of the problems. So last night I shared uh, a little bit about what Gill has written about this appreciation, and I think it's worth sharing it again just to really take that in, take in the importance of this appreciation. He says, the path of freedom is nurtured by appreciating the times we are free. So even right now, you might again notice, this time in relation to aversion, how much aversion is present right now. Again, using that scale of 10 through 0, see if it's where it might be hovering or flickering. And if it's below a 5, see if you can appreciate that. So he says, when we've been caught up in an attachment, it's useful to value how we are when not caught. When a hindrance is no longer present, take time to enjoy this absence. To be mindful and present without being hijacked by the hindrances is a joy. The relief that arises when the mind is free of the hindrances is a delight. If you can feel this sense of well-being, you'll know a type of pleasure that is better than any sense pleasure and better than the energy of ill will. The mind will naturally want more freedom rather than losing freedom to the hindrances. Unhindered attention is a treasure. When the mind is settled and freed of the hindrances, we can discover the fullest possibility of liberation. So still, perhaps for some of you, that might seem like a faraway possibility. So we're fortunate that the Buddha offered us two wings to awakening. So far, I've mostly been emphasizing the wisdom wing. So now I'd like to turn towards the compassion wing, because compassion is a particularly powerful tool for working with aversion. And it works in a couple of different ways. It helps protect the mind from the aversion coming up in the first place. But if it does come up, it acts as an antidote that helps to neutralize it. And with repeated practice, compassion is kind of like an immune system boost. And aversion becomes much harder to get a hold on us. So what is compassion? Compassion is what flowers naturally when metta goodwill or kindness, turn towards pain, turns towards distress, suffering, dukkha. So the Pali word karuna that's usually translated into English as compassion, that word in English means feeling with. So it's the ability to, as some teachers say, it's the heart that vibrates in response to another's pain or to our own pain. But it's not just empathy. There's a little more to it than that word compassion in English might suggest because it also contains the desire to relieve the suffering. But for now, I'll just say that this willingness to feel with pain is not how people normally relate to dukkha. We're much, it's very counterintuitive to turn towards suffering instead of away from it. And many of us came to spiritual practice to try and get away from our pain. 
So this invitation to turn towards it might be feel a bit strange. That's not what I signed up for. Why would I want to get closer to pain? I want to get rid of it. Well, one reason we want to train this um, compassion muscle is that, as I was saying last night, if we stay in our comfort zones, they get smaller and smaller. But the problem with that is then we don't train the compassion muscle to be ready and available to us when one or more of life's inevitable challenges comes up. As I've been saying, because we have vulnerable human bodies, hearts and minds, every one of us is subject to old age, to sickness, to death, to separation, to loss, to grief, all of the calamities, uh, small and large, that are named in the first noble truth. So developing this compassion muscle now before we really need it is kind of like an insurance policy in some ways. So our usual instinct, though, when we meet some kind of pain is to try to get away from it, try to get rid of it. And so one analogy I sometimes use for compassion is it's a bit like if we're swimming in the sea and one of those big waves comes. Our instinct is to turn and try and swim away from it or run away from it. But if we can have the presence of mind to face into it and dive under it at just the right moment, we might be churned around a bit, but we usually come out the other side um, in not too bad shape, better than being slammed into the sand. So with that example, though, you can see that it does take presence of mind and it takes courage to turn towards suffering instead of running from it. But with training, it becomes easier. And it is a practice, so we can train in compassion just as we were training in metta earlier today. And in the insight tradition, compassion is usually practiced similar to metta, by reciting phrases, using words that evoke this quality of compassion, and then sharing them with different categories of people. So I'd like to uh, share some phrases that, have been, that I've been using in my own practice that I, I came up with. The first is, I'm aware of this pain. I care about this pain. May this pain release. May I know peace. And that can be shortened to aware, care, release, peace. And the first two phrases are helping us to see if there's any resistance to being with the pain. And then the second two phrases provide a reminder that all of this practice is about eventually moving beyond the pain. So the first phrase, I'm aware of this pain, is a kind of a test. So in the beginning, when I would say that to myself, I'm aware of this pain, there were times when it was like, not really. <laughs> oh, get it away from me. And then I, so it would illuminate resistance. And unless we see it, we can't do anything about it. So I'd be able to recognize, oh, not really wanting to be there. Okay, can I be aware of this pain? Yep, you can be over there and then gradually, slowly allow it to become, to come closer. And then the second phrase, I care about this pain. 
Similarly, sometimes I'd be like, not really. <laughs> I just want it to go away. Oh, okay. Can you soften and meet the resistance and see if there is some flicker of willingness to care about this pain? And at times, maybe we don't or we can't. So this is the practice of listening, noticing our own capacity. Perhaps we can care with it, care about it and be with it for 10 seconds and that's enough. And then we might need again to deliberately turn our attention to something that's either neutral or pleasant to refresh ourselves. Or if it really isn't the right time, we might need to just be bring awareness to that and say, okay, I'll come back to you at some point in the future. And then take a walk or have a cup of tea and then check in again later and see now how is my capacity so the point is to do whatever we do with as much consciousness as possible, gradually and gently expanding our capacity to be with Dukkha, because trying to force ourselves out of our comfort zones is a form of subtle violence, and it's completely counterproductive. And yet sometimes people do come to practice with an agenda. I'm going to drill down into my deepest childhood traumas, and nuke them out of the existence by the end of the retreat. Or they think that good practice means going down into our deepest emotional pain and staying there for as long as possible. But these are unbalanced and unhelpful ways of relating to the pain. So the second two phrases remind us that may this pain release, reminds us that this is not a masochistic um, suffering for the sake of suffering kind of practice. So it's true that compassion is sometimes presented as the heart that vibrates in response to another's pain, but that's only one aspect of the practice. It's not just empathy. If we're fully feeling another's pain, then that can very quickly lead to empathy burnout. But what pre prevents genuine compassion practice from leading to overwhelm, that it's oriented to helping release that pain whenever possible. And that requires really listening, really sensing into our own capacity, our own being. So many of you probably know Kuan Yin. She's actually standing at the back there watching over us. She is the archetypal embodiment of compassion in the later Buddhist tradition, in the Zen tradition. She's known as she who hears the cries of the world. And in the Zen tradition, it's said that she listens as if she had ears on every cell of her body, which is quite a striking image. And it points back to mindfulness as a practice of listening. I've been inviting us in the meditation instructions to settle back, to listen, to receive experience. And where appropriate, to respond rather than react. So this receptivity is not passive. Out of that deep listening, wisdom helps us to find an appropriate response. So as some of you know, with Kuan Yin, she's often depicted in this as a sculpture in this 
posture. So half of her body is sitting in meditation, but the other half is poised and ready to spring into action. So she embodies this balance of receptivity and willingness to respond. So this is really the quality of compassion that we're aiming for here. And as I said in relation to metta this afternoon, it's not that we're trying to manufacture some kind of kind or compassionate response. We're actually tuning into what's already there and uncovering what is actually a natural part of our heart, but often has become blocked in various ways. So these Brahma-Vihara practices are ways of seeing what gets in the way and helping them to release so that we can access the natural kindness and compassion of the heart. So for this process, I sometimes use the metaphor of the Hubble telescope, which in my probably a bit naive understanding is a very sophisticated piece of machinery or technology that is scanning through the universe and listening for signals of life. And sometimes I feel like these practices are like turning that Hubble telescope into the deepest, darkest reaches of our hearts and looking for flickers of life, flickers of metta or compassion. And just that act of recognition helps to strengthen them, helps to make them stronger and grow. So the fourth compassion phrase, may I know peace, reinforces the possibility of change. And we might even consciously imagine ourselves, at least temporarily, being free of whatever the pain, stress, distress, suffering is. And even just imaginatively feel into what it might be like to know peace, to visualize being free of dukkha, and attuned to that as vividly as possible, to get a very immediate felt sense of how that peace might be experienced. So, as I mentioned earlier, the Brahma-Vihara practices are known as purification practices because they're designed to show us what gets in the way of these skillful qualities. So if we sit down to cultivate compassion and we find ourselves wriggling with restlessness or lost in fantasy or bored out of our brains or completely shut down, then that too becomes part of the practice. And if we can approach these obstacles with the kind curiosity instead of self-judgment, then the hindrances can release and wisdom and compassion become stronger. So having said that, there are very, is one very common obstacle to compassion and that is fear. We're hardwired to avoid experiences that are painful and potentially life-threatening. So it's not surprising that we might have a deep and instinctive fear of moving towards difficulty instead of away from it. But there's a caveat here. The reason that there are two wings to awakening is that compassion needs to be supported by wisdom. 
we deal, we need to cultivate clear seeing or insight to know when our fear is just a knee-jerk reaction, an old habit, and when it's actually a wise fear that's keeping us out of genuine danger. And with practice and perhaps some degree of trial and error, we learn to distinguish between genuine compassion and what's sometimes called idiot compassion or foolish compassion. And this is when we get caught in unhelpful patterns of trying to help everyone with everything all the time, which of course is not only harmful to us, but potentially harmful to those we're trying to help as well. Because it uh, can keep us stuck in a pattern of enabling or codependency. So wisdom helps us to discern when to say no and when to say yes. But the point of this wisdom is not to make us immune from suffering. Paradoxically, it's to make us more vulnerable to it. Because unless we can open to the 10,000 sorrows of life, we won't be able to open to the 10,000 joys either. And part of the training of compassion is learning to expand the spectrum of what we're able to be with. While still, with wisdom, recognizing those times when it is appropriate to close the heart, to stay safe, to protect ourselves. So compassion, there's a second common misunderstanding of compassion that in the service of releasing judgment, we don't, we need to make sure we don't also release discernment. So I make a distinction between judgment and discernment and we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Wisdom understands what is harmful, unskillful and so on. So with wisdom, with discernment, we, we recognize that action was harmful, that action was unskillful. And if it was an action that I myself did, then I make the resolve to never do it again. If it was an action that someone else did, then I might need to make sure I don't put myself in harm's way again. And I might need to maintain some degree of connection with that person, but I make sure there are clear boundaries or limits to how much contact I have with them. So as the saying goes, we might throw someone out of our homes, but we try not to throw them out of our hearts. So forgiveness is also an aspect of compassion practice. But again, we need to take care not to force this process. When we've been deeply hurt, it can be an act of violence again to try to force ourselves to open the heart too quickly or in the wrong circumstances. So we need to respect that the heart closes for a reason and not demand that it opens again before it's ready. So in case you need any more convincing about this idea of opening to the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, there's a growing body of social science research these days that's starting to recognize the link between our capacity for vulnerability and our capacity for happiness. So many of you probably know the work of Brene Brown, who's a professor of sociology at Houston University, 
and she spent over 10 years now studying vulnerability and courage, authenticity, resilience and shame. And as far as I know, she's not a meditator, but the conclusions she comes to sound a lot like this um, process of compassion. And she even quotes Pema Chodron. So I'd like to read you a short extract from an interview she did a few years ago. She says, if you have a Petri dish, one of those glass dishes in the lab, and you have shame in there, this pervasive feeling of not being good enough, and not being whatever enough, not thin enough, rich enough, popular enough, promoted enough, loved enough. It only needs three things to survive in this Petri dish and actually to grow exponentially and creep into every corner and crevice of your life. These three things are secrecy, silence, and judgment. If you have the same amount of shame in a Petri dish, though, and you douse it with some empathy... If you share your story with someone who can hear you and look back at you and say, you're not alone, shame dies. Pema Chodron defines compassion as knowing your darkness well enough that you can sit in the dark with others. And she goes on to say, which is why it's so ironic to me that people think that vulnerability is weakness when really Letting ourselves fully soften into feeling is one of the most courageous things we can do. Emotions won't kill you, but not feeling them will. Our fear of emotion can kill us. Pain won't kill us, but numbing pain kills people every single day. So what's the antidote? To increase our tolerance for discomfort. To practice being uncomfortable. So that's pretty much what we're doing here, (laughs) practicing being uncomfortable so that we can become paradoxically comfortable. So how do we actually do this? Well, Brene Brown points out that empathy is what makes a difference. If you can share your story with someone who can hear you and look back at you and say you're not alone, this is what helps the shame to be released. So I see that listening as another aspect of compassion. And then retreat, when we're mostly in solitude, we can learn how to do this for ourselves. So this befriending of ourselves that I've been emphasizing, seeing if we can relate to ourselves as if we would a friend who is going through hard times. I think most of us have some capacity to be able to sit with a friend who's having a hard time and just listen to them and be with them in an open and caring and compassionate way. So can we take that same capacity to be compassionate for others and turn it towards ourselves? And even though we might understand that intellectually, many of us have some pretty strong and deep conditioning that makes self-compassion very challenging. Just the idea of self-compassion can bring up difficult reactions for people, including myself earlier on in my practice. So to get a sense of this, a few years ago I was uh, reading up on the challenges of self-compassion, and I found uh, 
a therapist, Paul Gilbert, who's written a lot about compassion-focused therapy, and he talked about just how difficult it can be for some people to cultivate self-compassion because of our pervasive conditioning. He says, commonly, for high shame and self-critical people, particularly those from harsh backgrounds, the beginning of the experience of warmth and kindness can ignite considerable sadness and grief. Self-kindness can be viewed with suspicion as being soft, self-indulgent or not deserved. And this indicates a fear of developing or experiencing self-compassion. The individual is afraid that if, if they give up self-criticism, they will become lazy, unpleasant or unlovable. And some think that they will be punished for self-compassion by paying for it later or having it taken away. So for some people, beginning to explore self-compassion might include learning how to relate very patiently to some of our deepest psychological conditioning. And sometimes when I've worked with students who have a lot of resistance to practicing self-compassion, they'll tell me that they can't find any phrases that feel authentic to them. And so with one student a few years ago, I was working with her to see if we could come up with some phrases that um, she felt were genuine and honest. And she had so much resistance in the beginning that at first the phrases that she came up with sounded something like this. May I be willing at some point in the future to have the intention to move in the direction... <laughs> of beginning to cultivate some degree of compassion towards myself. So it was like it was over here at arm's length. But that's okay. You know, we can start there. And she said she would recite those phrases three times every morning when she woke up. And just that, again, the power of intention, it can start to slowly bring it closer and closer. And we don't actually need to use phrases at all. You know, some of us are not very um, word-oriented. And so when we feel some kind of pain or distress, even just to momentarily put a hand on the heart or perhaps the face or the belly, just as that embodied reminder to offer ourselves a moment of soothing, just that can be helpful. Because every time we do this, again, because of the truth of neuroplasticity, we're strengthening those pathways in the heart-mind that lead to compassion, and we're de-nurturing the ones that strengthen ill-will. So neurons that fire together, wire together, or as the Buddha said, Whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that becomes the inclination of the mind. So he specifically recommended practicing compassion as an antidote to ill will and cruelty. And whether we're conscious of it or not, every one of us in every moment is shaping our minds by what we repeatedly think and say and do. And so the more we can strengthen those beneficial pathways, 
and withdraw energy from the unbeneficial ones, the more ease and peace we ourselves will experience, but also our net contribution to the world will shift in a positive direction and we help to, we start to help not only ourselves and our families, but our communities, our sanghas, our societies. So as the practice deepens, the shift from self-centered to other-centered is a significant deepening of the practice. And ultimately, there's no distinction between self and other. So later in the Buddhist tradition, as many of you know, these two wings of wisdom and compassion became made more explicit through the Bodhisattva ideal. And the Bodhisattva is someone who's taken a vow to postpone their own freedom so that they can stay around to help others find their way out of suffering too. And whether or not that ideal resonates for us personally at this point in our practice, we might still understand that connection that everything we're doing here benefits not only ourselves, but everyone we come into contact with. So some of you are familiar with um, Shantideva's Bodhicharya Vatara, a guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life. And I'd like to read you just a few lines from that because I think it captures this aspiration of compassion pretty powerfully. It says, May I be a protector for those without protection, a leader for those who journey, and a boat, a bridge, a passage for those desiring the further shore. May I be the doctor and the medicine, and may I be the nurse for all sick beings in the world until everyone is healed. May the pain of every living creature be completely cleared away. May the pain of every living creature be completely cleared away. May the pain of every living creature be completely cleared away. So thank you for your attention. Let's just sit in silence for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.